As our story continues in the book of Luke, we find some people who were gathered around and they were talking about the temple. And they were just going on and on about how beautifully the temple was adorned and how wonderful it looked. And why would they not? The temple, throughout its entire existence, had been something that was awe-inspiring, something that was powerful, and something that was important. For hundreds of years now, in the life of the people of Israel, the temple was a picture of hope, it was a picture of security, and it was a reminder that God was with them. But not only did it have all all the symbolism inside of it and behind it, but this particular incarnation of the temple was beautiful. This is what was called Herod's temple. Because Herod came in, King Herod wanted to make a name for himself that would last through generations, and so he decided to do that through architecture. And one of his pet projects was this Jewish temple. And he hiked up the taxes, and he put a lot of money into it, and he made this a stunning picture of beauty. And so these people were gathered around, and they were talking about how magnificent and how beautiful the temple was. And then Jesus walked up to him, and this is what he said. As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone on top of another that will not be thrown down. It's a bold statement. The temple had been standing for hundreds of years and it had already been destroyed and desecrated, but it keeps time after time rising up again because God keeps providing for his people. And now Jesus comes in, he says, one day all of this beauty that you're looking at is going to be completely torn down and completely removed. And so obviously, this inspires some questions and curiosity from the onlookers. And they start to ask Jesus, when? When is this going to happen? When is this amazing thing that you say? When is this going to take place? What should we be looking for? What are the signs? And then Jesus begins to teach. And he gives both a warning and a comfort. In verse 9 of chapter 21, by saying, When you hear of wars and turmoils, don't be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. And then he begins to tell them all about what will ultimately be a sign for not only the end of the temple, but he also goes into describing the end of an age, when God's fullness of his plan is made complete, and he'll make all things right and all things new. And so this morning, we are going to look through the book of Luke in chapter 21. And we're going to see Jesus talk about the beginning of a lot of ends. In fact, we're going to see two full seasons of human history come to an end during Jesus' teaching here. And we'll also see a projection for what he says will one day come. The ultimate hope of the Christian and the follower of Christ. But also we'll see what life looks like in between now and then as we stand in between the resurrection and the return, waiting for Christ to make all things new, but knowing that right here and right now we live in a world that is far from perfect and far from restored. And so let's look at this passage of scripture together. Luke chapter 21, verses 5 through 38. And while some were speaking of the temple and how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when they will, there will not be here left one stone upon the other that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? 
And he said, see that you're not led astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and turmoils, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famine and pestilence. There will be terrors and great signs of heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and sisters and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in the area of Judah flee to the mountains, and those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring sea and the waves, people fainting with fear, with foreboding of what is coming of the world. For the powers of the heaven will be shaken. And they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out and leaf, you see for yourself and you know that the summer is already near. So when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your heart be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day will come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. And Father, we do thank you for your word. And this one is a difficult one. It's hard for us to grasp. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around. And so, God, we just pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would teach us and that you would help us to understand the tension as Jesus is speaking to these people, some things that would happen to them immediately, but also as he is teaching about things that would one day take place as you bring heaven to earth and make all things right and all things new. 
And so as we look at Jesus' teaching about the beginning of the end and what that looks like, and as we're living in this last season, as we just wait until the day that Christ returns, help us to be alert and aware. Help us to live as people who follow you, as disciples who walk in your path through the midst of suffering and trials and tribulations as we walk towards the hope that we have in Christ and that beautiful message of eternal life. And so, God, speak to us through your word. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I've always thought it'd be fun just for maybe a day to get to live the life of an old school carnival barker. You know, the guys that would just stand outside with the amazing suits and the tails and the top hat and just yelling about all the good things that happened. Step right up, ladies and gentlemen, and come and see the most amazing, wonderful, awe-inspiring, miraculous thing that you've ever seen. And you just get to be out there and say all these amazing adjectives. And I love adjectives, and I probably use too many, but it's fine. Adjectives are really important. And they get to use all of them at once to talk about something that's probably not that big of a deal and probably not that amazing, but they make it sound so good. And there's something alluring about the idea of just being so incredibly positive and overzealous and completely glossing over any of the things that you can't see and just putting the best information out there. And sometimes pastors and church leaders and Christians in general can sound a lot like carnival barkers or sometimes even worse, like old school snake oil salesmen, where we just talk about all the good. Oh, things are going rough. Try Jesus. He makes everything better. Your marriage is going through a hard time. Maybe you can try a little Jesus, and maybe he'll put all the pieces together. Are you sick? Try Jesus, and he'll make you better. Just take one in the morning, and by the next day, you should be fine. If you just plug Jesus into your life, then all of these little things that you want solved are all going to come together and be better. But the problem with that pitch when it comes to following Jesus is that it's not the one that Jesus gave. In fact, his is much different. Look what's happening here in chapter 21. Jesus is talking to these people about what it looks like to follow after him and what's going to soon take place to people who follow him. And in verse 10, he says, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilence, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. And all of that sounds horrifying, but then he zooms in on the people that are following him. It says, before all of this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and governments. And he continues to go on and on saying that if you follow after me, things are about to be very difficult. In fact, he wraps it up with these incredibly positive words by saying that you will be hated for my name's sake. Before that, he says, some of you will be put to death and that there will be people in your family who turn you over to the government and you will suffer greatly because of me. And now remember, Jesus just rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And when he did, people were lining the streets, singing Hosanna and waving palm branches and laying their clothes on the ground before him, ready to follow him anywhere. And so he has all of this momentum. This feels like a movement getting ready to start, but this is not the way that you motivate your crowds. This is not the way that you start a movement by saying, yeah, if you follow me, 
nothing will be good for you. You're going to experience suffering. You're going to experience persecution. You're going to experience hatred for my name's sake. But while this doesn't seem to make sense, we have to remember that Jesus isn't looking for crowds, but disciples. And that Jesus isn't calling people to a better and safer life, but to an eternal life. And while that comes as a free gift through salvation, it doesn't come easy and is often very personally costly as we go through that life. And this is how Christianity began. Not with Jesus saying, follow me and I'll make your life better. Not with Jesus saying, follow me and I'll solve all your problems. Follow me and I'll put all these pieces together. It's Jesus saying, follow me and you will probably suffer and you might even die. But on the other side of that, I have something far greater for you. And perhaps we should do a better job of putting this side of Christianity out forward. Because Christianity is not about following Jesus through the easy places. But it's about being willing to follow Jesus wherever he leads, even if that leads to times of suffering and times of difficulty and times even of persecution. Maybe we should look people in the eyes before they go through the waters of baptism and say, do you really believe in Christ and are you willing to follow Jesus wherever he leads, even if that is not personally beneficial, even if it is personally detrimental, because this is the kind of faith to which we're called. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, to walk in his footsteps and to follow our Savior who is willing to die on the cross for us and to be willing to do the same for those around us. And he's talking to these people saying, listen, very shortly, you're going to suffer. And he was right. Within that generation, these early followers of Christ began to suffer for their faith in Jesus. They began to be persecuted from the outside on all sides. And these exact things were happening. We even see this happen to Paul sometime later as he is brought before the Roman governments and the Roman authorities. And it was happening to Christians all over the region. But Jesus didn't see this suffering as a simple byproduct of following him. But as a type of reward. Look at what he says here. But they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Jesus calls this kind of suffering an opportunity. He says, when these things happen to you, these aren't incidental, these aren't coincidental. And all through this passage of Scripture, all through the book of Luke, we've seen that Jesus is very clear that everything that happens does so for a reason, and that we should recognize every opportunity we have, both for the good and for the worse, to be an opportunity to glorify God and to love and to serve and to care for those that God has put in our lives, be they friends or enemies, people who love us or people that hate us. And so Jesus says, when you find yourself presented to these kingdoms and to these governors and to these synagogues that want to persecute you and that want to hate you and that want to have nothing to do with you, then you look at this as an opportunity to get to share the good news of my salvation with them. But he also promises them that they won't be going alone. 
He says, settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. He says, when all of these things happen, remember that you don't go alone. That I, the same God who was with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as they went from place to place, as I helped Joshua go into the promised land and went before them and worked for them, I'm doing the same for you now. And when you experience these hardships, know that I am with you and I'm going to be for you and I'm going to sustain you and I'm going to give you the words that you need to say. And I'm going to give you hope. But again, he words this in a very strange way. Verse 16 says, you'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and sisters and relatives and friends. And just imagine that feeling of betrayal as family turns on family simply because these people are following after Jesus. And he says, some of you they will put to death and it doesn't feel like there's a whole lot of hope. He says, you'll be hated for my name's sake. But then he says something in verse 18 that doesn't make sense and seems to contradict with everything that he just said. He says, but not a hair of your head will perish. And how does that work? He says, some of you are going to be put to death. Some of you are going to suffer these incredible things, but not a single hair on your head will be harmed or will perish. And of course, Jesus is making this reference to the resurrection. Because we talked about last week, as Jesus stood before those Sadducees and talked about the resurrection of the believers, he's given us this reminder that anyone who puts their faith in Christ is not only a new creation, they're not only forgiven, but they are given this inheritance that is beyond our wildest imagination. That yes, we may taste death on this side of glory, but to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. And that one day, Jesus is going to return and make everything right and everything new, including every part of who we are, body, soul, mind, and spirit. And so Jesus is telling these early believers that this may cost you everything. This may cost you your family. This may cost you all of your material possessions. This may even cost you your life. But even if these people kill you, they can't kill you. Because you've been given a hope in me that lasts beyond your last breath. And I will care for you for all of eternity. And one day, you will be made new. And so you may fall for a moment, but you're not going to perish. And this is the invitation that we have to follow Jesus. The same invitation that was true for these early followers of Jesus, same for us. That this isn't an easy calling. In fact, even though we are saved by grace, everything that happens on the other side of salvation may be incredibly costly. And while it's less costly living as an American Christian than some places in the world, it still costs us something and may even cost us our lives. But we should recognize these as opportunities to share the good news of Jesus, to not suffer like those who have no hope, but to remember that no matter what comes in this life, that Christ is better, that Christ is greater, and that Jesus has a plan to bring all of these things to the good of those who love him once and for all and for all of eternity. And that the same promise that he gives to these people in verse 19 is true for us as well. That by your endurance, you will gain your lives. 
that when we go through this life and suffer for Christ and give everything, take up our crosses and follow Jesus, that when we endure and persevere through every season and everything that happens in this life, on the other side of our last breath, we will truly, once and for all, gain life. And so Jesus lays it all out there, plain and clear. No sparkle, no whitewashing. He just says, this is what it means to follow me. And it is hard and it will cost you something, maybe cost you everything. But in the end, it will be worth it all because you will gain more than you could ever lose. But then he continues on and he begins talking about Jerusalem and really getting to answer the question that these people have asked when he talks about the destruction of the temple here at the very beginning of this passage of Scripture. And again, the city of Jerusalem and the temple in particular had always been a very important part of the Hebrew lives. Because remember, when God called these people, they weren't really much of anything. God called Abraham out of his father's house, full of a house of idols, and made him a people when there was no people. And these descendants of Abraham began to grow and begin to become more numerous, and then they became slaves. And after they were slaves, then they were wanderers and nomads, and they were living out of tents and even worshiping God inside of a tent. And so when they finally arrived in the promised land, and they built the walls around their city, and Solomon built that first temple, it meant something. They had a place that was their own. They had a God that was constantly in their midst, and there was a place that they could go to be in the presence of God and to worship God. And as long as that temple stood, there was a feeling of safety and security and a reminder that God was with them. Not long after it was built, just generations after it was built, the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians, and the people were taken into exile and captivity and again lost that feeling of security. And you can see how much the city and how much the temple meant when you look through books like Ezra and Nehemiah and you see the great effort that went into rebuilding the temple and then you see the incredible worship as Ezra presided over the rededication of the temple and read the law of God and people were falling on their faces and crying and worshiping God because they now had this place again and it was a reminder that they were home. And even here, living under Roman occupation in this city of Jerusalem, as they walked into this temple that was ordained by and and decorated by a pagan king, they still had the reminder that no matter what was going on around them and in the world around them, when they went inside of that temple, they were the people of God, and it was a place of refuge. But now in verse 20, Jesus says, one day you're going to see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. And then you'll know that the desolation has come near. Jesus is saying, there is coming a time when this city that was a stronghold and a place of safety for you is not going to be that any longer. And this temple where you come to worship God, it's not going to be here anymore. And then we see in those verses that follow the fallout of a refuge destroyed. He says, if you're in the city, you need to run to the mountains. And if you're in the country, don't come in. This is going to be a very dangerous time to be alive. And sure enough, within that generation, around 66, the army started to surround Jerusalem. And then Nero marched his armies through the wall and in 70 AD destroyed the temple completely and totally. Not one stone left on top of the other. 
And so Jesus is predicting here the fall of a city. But he's predicting more than that. He's predicting more than just a city or a temple falling apart. But he's talking about the end of an entire system. Something that had been in place for generations and generations, for hundreds and hundreds of years. All of that is about to come to an end. And this is why there was such conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. Because these religious leaders, they looked at the law, they looked at the temple, they looked at the sacrificial system, and they saw that as the ultimate way through which people get to God. But Jesus understood and began to declare that it was just the, some, the foundation for something new and that something new had come. And when we look at the harmony of the Bible, the Old Testament and the New, everything in the Old Testament is designed to point us towards something better. All the systems, all the functions, all the buildings, even some of the people in the Old Testament are designed to point our eyes towards something better coming. And so when we see the sacrificial system put into place, our minds and our hearts should be pointed towards the ultimate sacrifice of Christ. When we see the temple worship, it's a small picture of heavenly worship that Christ will bring in as he told that woman that one day God's people will worship not on this mountain or in this place, but they will worship God in spirit and in truth because the presence of God will be with his people and the law of God will be written on their hearts. Even the temple itself, was just pointing us towards a new and a more perfect temple. But this time, the temple is not a building where people go to meet with God, but it is a person where God comes to meet with his people. And Jesus is making this declaration that this building is not what you're looking for, and this is not the place where you go to meet with God, but now you come through me, and I am making God accessible to anyone who would follow after me. Jesus came to bring the kingdom to earth and inaugurating a new season where people come to God not through a system, but through a person. And not through the law, but through grace. And it is a good season. But it's not a perfect one. And as Jesus lays out the fallout for what happens after the destruction of Jerusalem, we see a picture really of the last 2,000 years where there is difficulty and trial and trouble and tribulation for not only God's people, but for everyone in the world. That we live in the balance of a world where Jesus came and has initiated the kingdom of God, but it's not complete and in its fullness now. And even we are pictures of that. Where Paul says that we're a battle between flesh and spirit. We're a battle between our sinful nature and the new nature that Christ has given us. We live in that tension between what the old had for us and what the new is bringing. But even here, Jesus promises in verse 24 that there is an end to this season as well. It says, They'll fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And as we look through Scripture, there's always this understanding that the God who is above time and space, the God who knows all things and sees all things, that he has a time and a place for everything. The whole book of Ecclesiastes is designed to teach that, that there are seasons for everything that takes place and that God has measured out the time and measured out those seasons. And one day those seasons will all come to a close to bring something new into place. 
But this season that Jesus talks about, that he calls the time of the Gentiles, this time after the destruction of the temple, after he sets into motion the, the life and the blood of the church, he says one day that season will come to a close as well, but it's going to be different. And he begins to continue on, talking about what the heading in my Bible says, the coming of the Son of Man. This time when Jesus comes again to make all things right and all things new. He says there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Now, if you're hoping for a full breakdown of all the things that the Bible teaches us about how things will go at the end when Jesus comes and restores all things, if you expect me to have a giant chart up here of some kind, I hate to disappoint you, but that's not what's happening today. But it is important to recognize here that Jesus teaches us something very important about the end, or I guess we could call it the beginning. But in verses 8 and 9, Jesus gives a very hard warning to these people, not just about the destruction of the temple, but about just life in general. And we see Jesus say something that he said multiple times, because they see, when are these signs going to take place? And he says, see that you're not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand, and don't go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be afraid, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. So Jesus says, normal everyday things, no matter how good they are or how bad they are, these are not signs that the end is coming. No matter how shocking they may be, this is not the kind of stuff that you're supposed to look for. And if you look through the history of Christianity in general, Anytime there was a major persecution, anytime there was a major war, anytime anything catastrophic happened, whether in someone's country or across the entire world, people would immediately rise up and start saying, okay, this must be it. This must be the time that Jesus is coming. It couldn't possibly be any more obvious than right now. World War I was a good example of that. The war that we call the war to end all wars for about 30 years. Because people, not just the the entire world, but Christians would look at that and say, this has to be some sort of sign of the end. The entire world is at war. Nothing could be worse than this. Jesus must surely be coming back. And then sure enough, 30 years later, we have something even more catastrophic. And so Jesus says, listen, there are going to be earthquakes and there are going to be wars and there are going to be natural disasters because this world is still broken with sin. Paul says the earth itself in Romans 8 is just crying out and groaning for Jesus to restore it and to make it new. And so because we still live in a world that is broken by sin, waiting for Christ to restore it, there are going to be good days and bad. There are going to be some days when we can't imagine things being any better and some days when we can't imagine things being any worse. And Jesus says no matter what side of that pendulum we find ourselves on, those ordinary things are not the signs that we're supposed to be looking for. But he says there will be a day 
There will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves and people fainting with fear and all these incredible things that Jesus says. And when he says that in verse 25 and 26, he is not calling us to go out and look for blood moons or eclipses or weird things in the sky or strange signs. He's not calling us to be astrologers or try to figure out all these things and put some sort of Bible code together. This isn't some sort of weird guessing game. Jesus says, listen, trust me, when it's time, you're not going to have to ask if it's time. There's not going to be any question. There's not going to be any concern. Everything is going to be so radically, shockingly different that you're going to have no response other than saying, "Oop, I better pay attention. And so we're not meant to be looking for signs, but waiting until it is very, very obvious. And at that time, Jesus says that he will return. Look at how he says this in verse 27. They will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. You're not going to have to guess about what this looks like when it comes. And Jesus will return to make all things right and all things new. And he's not going to come back as a baby born vulnerable and helpless in a manger or a suffering servant. But Jesus is going to return as the king of kings coming to judge the nations and set the world to rights. But for those who trust in Christ, this is not a time to fear. Because listen to verse 28. Now when these things begin to take place, Straighten up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Jesus paints this picture of a world in chaos. At the beginning of the year, we're going to talk about the book of Genesis. We're going to look at the first 11 chapters of Genesis after we finish the book of Luke. And the book of Genesis begins with chaos, that in the beginning there was God and he created the heavens and the earth, but the earth was formless and it was chaotic and it was void and it was empty. And now Jesus paints a picture of that happening right now. He says, after the temple falls and you see this refuge destroyed, what's the aftermath of that is just complete and total chaos and anarchy and people going all different ways and people living and people dying and people fighting and earthquakes happening and storms and all these things. And it's going to feel chaotic and it's going to feel abnormal. But one day I'm going to bring all of these things back to the way they should be. And he says, and when you see this happen, When you see the Son of Man coming on the clouds in all of his glory, then it's not time to shrink or to hide away or to be scared. But he says, straighten up and lift your heads because your redemption is coming. Everything that we're waiting for, everything that we're hoping for, Jesus is going to bring that to the world once and for all. And so for these early followers, he's saying you're going to suffer and there's going to be great difficulty. But one day all of that suffering is going to be worth it. And you are going to be redeemed once and for all from the inside out. All the fear and the chaos caused by the fall of one refuge will be restored by the consummation of the new. And we'll be called, as the book of Hebrews says, to enter into the rest of God to put down the busyness, to put down the pain, to put down the heartache, to put down the struggle, to put down the suffering, and to just rest with Christ. And so we need to be people who learn to straighten up as we anticipate the return of Christ. 
to not live as people who have been defeated, or as we looked at last week, not look as pe- live as people who are dead, but live as people who have been made alive and are waiting for this promise that Christ is coming and that he will bring with him our redemption. Jesus continues by saying, look at those fig trees and look at all the other trees. And when you see those leaves coming out, you know that summer is near. And he says, so you know, as all these things are happening, that something is coming, that I am coming to bring all of these things into order. And I'm going to promise everything that I have promised, I will fulfill. And so he says, watch yourselves in verse 34. And don't be weighed down with dissipation or drunkenness or cares of this life. He says, don't be distracted by all the things around us. Don't be dismayed or brokenhearted about the things that are going on. But remember, this is only for a season, and these seasons have been measured by God. And one day, this season, too, will come to a close. And what is birthed out of it will be something better than you could ever imagine. And so stay awake, he says in verse 36. Stay awake at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And so as we live in difficult times, as Christians have always lived in difficult times, it's not for us to be broken, to be scared, to be afflicted, or to fear, but to pray. To pray that God would give us the strength to endure the things that we don't have the strength to endure that he would help us to walk through the things that we can't possibly walk through, knowing that even if this life takes everything from us, that they cannot take Christ, and Christ has promised to give us more than we could ever lose. We see this in the example of Paul, who says, everything I once held dear, I now count it all as loss. And so it doesn't matter if I have a lot. It doesn't matter if I have nothing. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength because Paul knew well that the resurrection of Christ had promised him a full restoration and redemption of his person. And so he knew that no matter what happened to him, even as he laid himself down to have his head cut off by the Roman government, that even though he gave his life for Christ, that not one hair on his head would perish. And so let's straighten up and let's live like those kind of people to be ready for the return of Christ at all times. And until he does return to make all things new, being followers of Jesus, disciples of Christ, following him into the difficult places, doing the difficult things, being willing to suffer if necessary for Christ, knowing that it's all worth it, that it's an all an opportunity to glorify God and to share our faith with others, and that one day our redemption will draw near and we will rest in Christ for all eternity. And it's amazing that Jesus teaches this right here. Because as we begin next week, looking at these next chapters of Jesus, we'll see Jesus sit down with his disciples and take a Passover meal and change it forever. Because he knew that not only were his people about to suffer incredible, unspeakable things, that before anyone else ever suffered for Christ, he would first suffer for them. And we're going to begin now looking at the teachings of Jesus as we enter the Advent season. We're going to look at the teachings of Christ as he marched his way towards the cross and towards the resurrection. And so we know that because we have a a king who suffered for us, 
that he is going to care for us if we're called to suffer for him. And so let's be willing to do so and live as people following our king. Let's pray.